Welcome back to another episode of TMX Presents, the podcast. My name is George Khalife. I'm the Vice President of U.S. Capital Formation for both TSX and the TSX Venture Exchange. Today, I'm joined by Paige Tucker, who's the President and CEO of ProStar Holding. Paige has an extensive background working in technology startups and has authored more than 20 patents based on geospatial, mobile, and cloud technologies, including the methods for capturing, recording, and displaying the precise location of buried infrastructure. And that's what led to, in 2014, the founding of ProStar, which specializes in the development of mapping software. ProStar solutions are being adopted by some of the largest entities in North America, including Fortune 500 construction firms, the largest subsurface utilities engineering firms, and government agencies. ProStar is now listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the ticker MAPS, M-A-P-S. Paige, thanks a lot for uh, doing this. Thanks for being here. I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to you on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We're doing some digging around on your story. I think one, one of the most interesting things that stood out to me is you know, knowing that you became known as a tech visionary, especially in the automotive industry for predictive modeling, using geographic info systems. So what I wanted to start with is what was your start like? You know, how did you get involved in this industry? Well, I went to school in San Francisco State. That's where I went to college. And as a result of that, I was exposed to all of the technology advancements that were taking place at the time in the Silicon Valley. And I was working and managing a car dealership when I realized that there was a lot of information that was being held within the system of record, the databases, the computer systems at the dealership that we couldn't extract. So, you know, customer records, including sales and service, all the contact information of customers that have come into the dealership, you know, over the years. And I knew that that data was gold. So I designed a system to actually be able to extrapolate that data out of those systems. And that was my first introduction into, you know, developing software, particularly that would integrate into other systems. And that's when I started my own company that was a marketing company that was based on utilizing that data, do very targeted marketing campaigns to customers specifically around where the dealership was located. And as a result of having that data and being able to mine that data, the responses that we got as a result were significantly higher than national averages. And then as a result of that, at the time, customer relation management systems became a big topic of discussion in the industry. So I set out to design the first web-based CRM application for automotive dealers and was successful in developing that technology. And part of what we did is we would integrate what's known as GIS, Geographic Information Systems, which would tell you basically where these customers were located geographically. And then as a result of that, you could integrate other systems and you know run analysis and predictive modeling on that data. I left that company and started doing some research on being able to build a system where you could identify where utilities and pipelines are buried below the ground. I'm Canadian. I grew up in northern British Columbia. And during the summers when I was in high school and also during vacations in college, I would work out in the oil and gas industry, earn a little extra money. And quite often we would hit pipelines that were located right in the path that we were doing construction, but we had no information that indicated that there was a pipeline you know, potentially that we could hit during our construction, we'd be installing, you know, other pipelines. 
So I kind of put two and two together and said, this is a major problem in the industry. So what if I could take all of the experience and knowledge that I have in developing systems, databases, integrating geographic information systems, and somehow figure out if we could identify where utilities and pipelines are buried below the ground. Create, if you will, a Google Maps of the underground. Started doing some research, worked with some of the largest companies in the world that were involved in this space, not particularly trying to identify where utilities and pipelines are buried, but all the components that would be required. So, for example, we worked closely with John Deere and a subsidiary called Navcom, which developed GPS systems for the ag industry, you know, for farmers. Worked with the equipment manufacturers that developed tools that could actually identify where utilities and pipelines were buried below the ground, but they weren't capturing that data. And as a result of working with these various companies, it kind of gave me some insight on what would need to be developed and potentially how it could be developed. And so the first thing I did, though, is I started to develop a patent portfolio. Because if you commercialize a product, you can't patent it because it becomes public domain. So I spent several years developing a pretty expansive IP portfolio. And then once the patent started to get issued, then I knew it was time to go to market. And that's when we formulated the company 2014 and started developing out the system, testing it, working with customers that what we consider to be trusted testers that would test it, give us feedback, tell us where we need to make adjustments, where we need to add it, you know, add more features and functionality specifically to meet their business requirements and workflow processes. And that's how we kicked off the company. And then once we landed some key clients, I realized that we were probably going to require a significant amount of capital, you know, being a small startup. Plus, I had initially raised money from friends and family and angel investors, which, you know, a lot of companies do. You're trying to scrape the pennies together from wherever you can get them. And usually it's close friends that have confidence in you. Maybe they should or maybe they shouldn't, but it's the easiest place to access money. And then I got to the point where I realized that we would need a lot more money and maybe even more money over time. And it made sense to access the public markets. Well, thank you for that overview. I want to backtrack actually going to sort of the origination side of it. And one of the interesting things that I realized when I heard some of your interviews and your previous podcast as well is one, how nascent, how archaic a lot of that industry looked like. Right. So when you were getting started, whether it was filing your pants or building ProStar, one of the things that you mentioned is this spaghetti bowl of utilities. You know, if you look underground, there's all these pipes that are jumbled together, many of whom were laid 50 to 100 years ago with no regulation oversight. And so was that the tipping point for you? Is this when you really realized we have a, a huge potential aside from just a, a really credible market to go after? Actually, when the light bulb really went off was we initially started out developing what we call excavation guidance system. So think of it kind of the OnStar for heavy equipment, where you'd have a heads-up display system that would be inside the cab of the heavy equipment, you know, like a backhoe, which would basically display to the operator where potential dangers could be based on where utilities and pipelines are located in the area where they're doing digging. Well, we developed the system. I even met with John Deere. And 
the question that they posed to me was, this is very interesting, but where are you going to get the information of where the utilities and pipelines are buried? Well, the obvious source would be the utility and the pipeline companies. And they told me they don't have any idea where their utilities or pipelines are buried, which that shocked me. And at first you would think, oh, oh you know, I'm in trouble now because I've, my whole system is based on being able to get that data from the utility and pipeline companies. But that's when the light bulb went off and said, oh, okay, well, we'll take a step back and we'll design a system that can precisely, meaning accurately, capture and record and display where these utilities and pipelines are buried below the ground. And then once I started to do my research, I just realized how big of a problem this is. For example, we all know based on a lot of campaigning that's been coming you know, out of the White House over the last couple of years that our roads and our bridges and our highways and our dams are becoming seriously dilapidated and in serious need of repair and replacement. And I'll call that our surface infrastructure. And there's 2.5 million miles of paved roads that crisscross the nation. And about 75% of our goods are delivered to us based on transporting those goods on those highways. So it, it can seriously impact our economy. Well, there's 35 million miles of buried utilities and pipelines. And as you mentioned, a large majority of those utilities and pipelines were put into the ground between 50 to 100 years ago, well before we had any level of compliance or any type of regulation, oversight. And in addition to that, it was never intended to support the population growth that we've experienced. So what I tell people is, if we think our roads and bridges and highways systems are becoming dilapidated and in serious need of repair and replacement, it pales in comparison to what's buried below the ground, which by the way, these are systems that deliver you know, our drinking water and help us expose our sewage. So this infrastructure, which is called the underground infrastructure, is also in serious need of repair and replacement. It's a very vast infrastructure, it's big. It sounds both a massive opportunity, but it's also shocking to know that given the volume and the size that it covers across the nation, and I'm sure in different countries as well, that it wasn't digitized to the extent that it is, and obviously that's why ProStar exists. I wanted to bring up this quick uh, analogy for you, Paige. I don't know, it just came to mind. A little bit tangential, as you'll see, but I recently uh, started doing Cairo, and before I started doing you know, adjustments for my neck, my back, whatever it was, the chiropractic doctor was like, before we do anything with you, we have to take CT scans because we have to see what's going on you know, underneath the hood, basically. Uh, so we, we understand where those kinks are and where, where those improvements need to be made. So it, it does seem, I know it's a kind of a weird example, but like many things, you have to sort of personalize and understand what's under, underneath the, the skin, the body, to understand how to actually perfect it. That's actually uh, a pretty good analogy because I think the majority of people out there at some point in time have had you know, an x-ray trying to identify where there could be a potential issue. But in addition to that, what's surrounding where that issue exists? Because you have to know both of those components in order to create a successful remedy, right? Mm -hmm. So what might surprise people is that, as I mentioned, 50 to 100 years ago, when the majority of this infrastructure was put into the ground, you know, very little oversight, compliance, no one was really concerned about where these utilities or pipelines were being placed, what might, might surprise you is that in the last 50 years, including today, 
the way that we still map where these utilities and pipelines are buried is on paper maps. I mean, we're in the modern digital era. Everyone is transforming to digital, and yet the utility and the pipeline industry as a whole is still mapping where the utilities and pipelines are located on paper maps. What does that actually look like? Like for someone who doesn't understand the industry as well, when you say map it by paper, what does that actually look like? So the best way to explain it is that when you originally design where the utilities and pipelines are going to be installed, they're designed on what's called an as-built drawing. And an as-built drawing is literally a drawing on a piece of paper that will identify where's the best place to you know, install these utilities and pipelines, which poses two problems. Number one, you're designing it on paper, which makes it very difficult to share that information. But secondly, when you're doing the design, you're designing it based on a perfect environment. You know, for example, it's going to be a perfectly straight line. It's going to be buried exactly at six feet below the ground. And it's going to be offset, you know, three feet from the curb or in the center of the road. But when you get out there and you actually install the utility or pipeline, there's several factors that come into play that can impact where it's actually being buried. For example, the ground conditions could be too harsh. And you wouldn't know that because you don't have any other information when you're planning and designing it in your office. There could be obstacles in the way. In addition to that, where they're going to place it could be over-congested with existing utilities and pipelines that they had no idea that they were there. So those factors can change where those utilities and pipelines are actually installed into the ground. But once they're installed, then they're buried, they're paved over, then the regulators come out and they take a look at where they were installed in comparison to the as-built drawings. And as long as it's close enough, then they'll sign off that it's okay, which creates a problem because then those paper maps become what's known as the system of record, which means they're inaccurate by nature. And anytime I have to go out and do any type of repair or replacement or another installation of another utility, Everybody gives me that information based on these as-built drawings on paper maps, they're in different formats, that tells me this is where they're buried. But everyone now knows that that information's not correct, so then it becomes somewhat of a guessing game. So that creates the first problem. The second problem, and this has been going on for decades, is okay, how do we address that? How do we actually locate where utilities and pipelines are located? Well, in Canada, every province has a system in place, and in the United States, every state has a system in place. In the United States, they're called 811 centers. In Canada, they're called click before you dig. And what those centers do is they take all the data that's been provided to them by the utility and pipeline companies of where they think their utilities and pipelines are buried. How do they get that information? Majority is based on these as-built drawings, these paper maps, which no one trusts that information anymore, okay? But it's the best that they can do, and it's what they've done, as I mentioned, for decades. Anytime you're going to do construction that requires digging activity, by law, you have to inform the center of where you're going to be doing that construction. Then what the center does is they take all the information being provided to them, and they try and determine who's going to be impacted by that construction, 
Then they notify the utility or pipeline companies. They have to come out and identify where the utilities and pipelines are located. They'll send out what's called a contract locator that uses what's called an electromagnetic cable and pipe locating device, which the majority of the time will locate where a utility or pipeline is buried. Think of it kind of as, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's like a metal detector and you're out on the beach trying to find a coin and you're waving it along. These devices are specifically designed to identify where a utility or pipeline is located. And they do a very good job of doing that the majority of the time. The problem is, is that once they locate where the utility or pipeline is buried, they put a paint mark on the ground. And that paint mark is basically supposed to mark where that utility or pipeline is located. And they'll draw it based on a color code that'll identify what type of utility is. So if it's red, it's power. If it's blue, it's water. If it's yellow, it's gas, so on and so forth. The challenge with that process is I have no way of knowing if they actually located the correct utility because often you can mistake, say, for example, a fiber optic line for a power line. I have no information that tells me, you know, how deep it's in the ground, if there's any other utilities, you know, surrounding it. In addition to that, it doesn't tell me if they even located a utility at all. I don't have any records that give me any indication of the confidence level that the utility was located. It's gotten to the point where the construction companies, engineering surveying firms, and the excavating companies, which are the companies that take on all the liability, they don't trust that system at all. They don't trust those paint marks anymore. In fact, a recent study came out in the United States that that current system, the 811 system, is costing the U.S. economy over $62 billion a year. That means it's broken and it's not working. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're in the digital era. With all the modern technology that we have access to, that other industries are adopting and leveraging to significantly improve their workflow processes and their business practices, you would think that this industry would also adopt technology. But the construction industry, for example, is known as a lagger. They're ranked number 50 in the world, which means two things to me. They're ready for change and they're ripe for adoption, which what I would call disruption. I actually call it it's time to disrupt this industry, and we are well positioned to do that. When you have to service and sell into, to use your example, let's say the construction industry, which is falling behind on the digitization scale, do you find it sometimes difficult, like in the beginning processes of actually explaining how you can help? Do you find that resistance up front of, hey, Paige, thank you very much. Like we got it under control. We've been doing this for 50, 100 years. There might not be room for technology in what we're doing. Did you meet that resistance early on when you were building ProStar? Oh, I definitely met it early on. And in some cases, you know, we're still meeting that resistance. You know, that's the wall that we're slowly chipping away at, which is called the wall of change. Human nature, and none of us like change. We're somewhat creatures of habit. And if something's working, then we're going to keep doing it. And if, if there's a better, say, formula that comes out, and it's maybe a little better, it's not worth the change. You have to come out with something that is a significant improvement, you know, almost what I'd call a no-brainer, like, I have to do this. I like to use an example of this. So 
I remember when I was traveling and I would travel with our salespeople and we would, you know, go into these cities that we weren't familiar with and stay in, you know, hotels and obviously fly into the airports. And I'd always take taxis. Well, one day I was traveling with a salesperson and I said, we should call a taxi. And he said, well, I'm just going to use Uber. And I'm like, well, no, I should just call a taxi. And he goes, no, no, trust me, we're going to use Uber. And I had heard of Uber, but had never used it, right? I'm, a, I'm the late adopter. You know, I'm, I don't want to change. been using taxis all my <laughs> life. So he pulls up the Uber app and he clicks the button. And he says, he'll be here in about three minutes, so we, we better get ready. And I go, how do you know that? He goes, tells me on the app, shows me exactly where it is, tells me what kind of car he is, and actually where he's located, and I can see how close he's getting. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. The guy shows up, it's exact car, drops us off. We come out of our first appointment, and I said, we should get a taxi. And he goes, I already called Uber. He'll be here in about one minute. Well, by the end of the day, I said, hey, can you show me how to download that Uber app? And today, I'm the guy that goes, why are you calling a taxi? You should be using Uber. Like, this is a no-brainer. In <laughs> fact, all my employees, no more rental cars, no more taxis, take Uber. Why? It's safer. It's more cost-effective. I know you're going to get there on time. And it's just a no-brainer. So I tell everybody, even in you know our company, just use Uber. Now, there's an example. So back to your question which I talk about chipping away at the wall of change. When we first brought the app out and we said that we can get centimeter accuracy of where a utility or pipeline is located on a standard mobile app, you know, including the smartphone that you have within arm's reach, and we can do it in real time, which by the way, the current process today to process all that data and get it back into the hands of the people that need it on average takes about two weeks. And we told them we can do it in two seconds. Well, unfortunately, too good to be true. No one believed it. So then we had to go out and work with companies, what I call early adopters, what we refer to as our trusted testers, to say, okay, test it, use it, and tell us what you think. Well, inevitably, they became believers. And you start bringing those on. We call them the early adopters. Then you use them as a reference, and you go back out, and you start talking to the other companies you know, like other similar engineering surveying firms, construction companies, locate companies, municipalities, which we're now expanding into. But their mindset is two things. Number one, well, the way we've been doing it for so long has been working for us. So we're just going to keep doing the way we've been doing it for decades. And number two is what you're showing us sounds like hocus pocus, you know, jiggery pokery. That's, it's too good to be true. So the two things that are now happening in the industry and no one can really put their thumb on this when it's going to happen. You know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can tell you there's some key indicators out there that are starting to happen. Number one, this industry realizes that it's going to go through a digital transformation. And they're starting to realize that there has to be a better way of doing things compared to the way we've been doing it, you know, for the last 30 years. Second to that, when they start looking for solutions out there, you know, a couple of years ago, I said, you know, our solution was just too good to be true. Like, well, if it was that good, then how come everyone's not using it? Well, you don't get everyone at once, but we're starting to get enough credible companies, government agencies included, Fortune 500 construction companies, as you mentioned. I'm also working with almost all of the major equipment manufacturers that are part of this 
food chain, if you will, that have adopted our technology, that I'm starting to get the visibility and credibility out in the market, that it's not too good to be true. Otherwise, these other companies and firms and agencies would not be adopting our technology. And what was the process like? I mean, for people by this stage of the conversation are probably wondering too, how do you go about digitizing, right? From what used to be, and probably still is to, to some length, is the, the sort of paper-based mapping, very manual, very archaic. How did you go about actually digitizing that and making it cloud-based on an interface like AWS, Amazon Web Service? Well, it took a lot of development and a lot of trial and error to get to the point, to tell you the truth, but... No cakewalk. Yeah, basically what we do, though, if I break it down, it's actually pretty simple. So what we do is we take the electromagnetic cable and pipe locating device, and that device will tell you what type of utility it is, how deep it's in the ground. It'll tell you, obviously, what method you utilize, meaning what type of tool were you using, because there's different versions of it. That's very critical data to determine where a utility is located. What you don't have is the geospatial component. Now, when Bluetooth was introduced, that was a game changer for us. And again, a lot of this has to do with kind of having the foresight of where technology is going. Because you start developing things today. Maybe the technology is not here today, but you're pretty confident that within a short period of time, that technology will arrive. Okay, so when Bluetooth arrived, that was a game changer. Because then these manufacturers integrated Bluetooth technology into their devices, which meant I could then pair it to a mobile device, like a smartphone. But then you also need another component. Like if you use the GPS chip that's embedded in a mobile device, that's only accurate to about two to five meters. That's not good enough, okay? So then we developed the ability to integrate into what we call precision GPS receivers. These are receivers that are external. They're not part of the mobile device, but they provide accuracy down to the centimeter. So when you take three technologies that are available as far as the equipment and the devices. You take a precision GPS receiver, I pair it to the locate device, and then I pair it to a mobile device. Then if I apply our application, which is called PointMan, and you download that onto the mobile device, we have the ability to capture all the information that's available from those devices on the mobile device. So we can tell you what type of utility it is, how deep it's in the ground, what the depth of cover is, and its geospatial location. So we can say, based on how many satellites are in view, that it is, for example, 1.4 centimeters accurate and buried, you know, say, 4.3 feet, or, you know, if I did that, obviously, in metric, below the ground. We capture that on the mobile device, shows you exactly where it is, and then we push that information up to the cloud. Up in the cloud is actually where we do all of our calculations. We have proprietary algorithms. We put it through several business processes, and then we make that information available. But instead of it taking two weeks, we literally do it in two seconds. And then because it's up in the cloud, that information can be shared to a wide variety of stakeholders that need that information. It could be the engineer in the office because maybe he said, oh, my plans are off compared to where I thought that was. Or it could be the excavator out in the field that's getting ready to dig and all of a sudden he realizes there's a gas line on the side of the street that he's getting ready to dig where the current records indicated it's on the other side of the street. Well, he needs to have that information right now or something seriously bad could happen. 
So it's basically, that's how easy it is. Now, obviously, how we designed it, how we get to the point to know it's that accurate, that's a little bit more difficult. For example, when we're collecting the data on the GPS receiver, it might tell us that there's 21 satellites in view, which is large amount of satellites, which is great because then obviously increases the confidence level of how accurate it is. We take what's called the NEMA string data, which is the data that's being pushed out from each one of those satellites. And then we have to calculate each one of those NEMA strings and the accuracy. And then that's how we know that we're down to, say, 1.3 centimeters or 1.6 centimeters. And we're doing all those calculations in real time. And that's just one component of the formula that we have to be able to provide this information. Well, Again, no one believed we could do that because that process today can take anywhere between three days to three months. And we're saying that we could do that in real time on a mobile device and do the calculations, you know, somewhere up in the clouds and then make that information available. But we now have believers out there that we can do it. And I could think of all types of technologies that they were first introduced. No one believed that we were going to be able to do that. I mean, I like to use autonomous cars as an example. I mean, when people were talking about autonomous cars and that, you know, they're going to be driverless, I'm sure a lot of people out there, including myself and maybe you would say, yeah, I'm sure it's coming, but not in my lifetime. Well, you know, it, it's already here. It happened that quick. And that's the way change is. Once it happens, it happens quickly. And people have to realize that, I mean, technology has significant value in current business practices that we have today once we implement them. The question is, when do we adopt them? That's very true. And adoption sometimes, even when it seems like in hindsight, so blatantly obvious, like one, one other example is the seatbelt. You know, the seatbelt was obviously at the time a very important innovation, but it wasn't really taken seriously up until probably 10 years after it was introduced or actually even placed in regulation where people had to formally be suited with it when they're driving. So it does take time. And the other interesting part before we sort of segue into the public markets is I think most people realize and obviously use on a daily basis Google Maps and think about how accurate Google Maps is from a retail level, right? From like an average person's daily movements, good for destinations, restaurant, hotels. But when you're talking about critical infrastructure, which ProStar is playing in, you know, construction, manufacturers, government agencies, everything has to be serving grade, right? It has to be extremely precise down to the centimeter. I think that's one of the things that through this conversation, hopefully is really highlighted and pressed on. Well, and maybe if I just elaborate on that, because I think it's great that you brought that up, because almost all of us are familiar with Google Maps. I mean, it's become part of our life, especially if we're traveling and we're in an unfamiliar area and we're trying to find our way maybe to a restaurant or back to the hotel. We're very familiar with Google Maps. We turn Google Maps on and it does a great job in providing the information we need to get us to the destination, but it's based on line of sight. I get close enough to an address and I can see the sign that says ABC Steakhouse and it's what I'm looking for. I can turn the app off or if I'm looking for get back to the Holiday Inn Express, I can see the sign, it's done its job, I can turn it off. What we're dealing with is things that you can't see. These are buried below the ground. And so I can't even be within say three meters because the underground is getting so congested with utilities and pipelines that within three meters, buried between one to nine feet below the ground, I could potentially have two dozen, three dozen, up to a hundred utilities buried. So in order to identify 
specifically what we call precisely where they're located, then we have to get down to the centimeter. And that's what we've designed. So, you know, as I explained earlier, think of us as the Google Maps of the underground, but instead of being accurate, measured in meters, we're accurate measured to centimeters. And in fact, survey grade is based on one to six centimeters, and we can deliver that. While you're building such interesting technology, you're filing all these patents around it, when does the decision to go public and potentially pursue this path towards TSX Venture going public in Canada become a, a serious conversation for you and for ProStar? Well, there's a couple components that are associated to that. So number one, what happens eventually is we're optimists, we're entrepreneurs. So we think we can develop this for, you know, maybe you have a budget of $2 million. And you kind of get the hat out and start talking to friends and family and you explain the opportunity, you know, what the potential ROI is. Then you realize that this is going to cost a lot more and take a lot longer than you expected. And by the way, a rule of thumb I have for any technologist out there that's an entrepreneur that wants to do a startup is it's always going to cost more and take longer than you think it's going to take. In other words, you're going to do the first raise and you think that that's going to be enough. Then you're going to have to go out, raise more, and then you're going to have to go out, raise more. And then you think, oh, I think this might take another year, and but I'm going to add another year. And then you're going to add another year. I just want that to everyone to know that that's a rule of thumb. Like this is going to be a lot harder and take a lot longer than, than you think. But when I realized it was, sat down one day and realized that we were going to have to have several millions of dollars to get this to the next level for two reasons. Number one, you know, address a lot of debt that we had accumulated based on borrowing money and notes and lines of credit. You're always overextended. And that we had really taken the tiger by the tails. Like this is a big global opportunity. This is a major problem. And if we were going to position ourselves to be able to capitalize when the storm happened, if you will, when the wave came, when the breakthrough arrived, when the market was ready to change, that it was going to take a lot, lot more money. And that the best way to access that money would be through the capital markets. I had been involved in another company. I was their technology advisor, and they were trading on the Toronto Exchange Venture. So I became somewhat familiar with the operations and how that works, not intimately, but just somewhat familiar. And I thought to myself, maybe we should explore going public on the venture. And I started discussions with the bank that was heavily involved in Canada with this other publicly traded company. And there was a high level of interest there. So we started those discussions and they said, yeah, this would be of interest to them and there could be significant potential for us to go public and realize the capital that we were looking for, which at the time was about $5 million. And then, of course, COVID hit, <laughs> which, you know, I always say hope for the best, prepare for the worst. The unexpected is probably always going to hit you. Well, COVID comes along right at the time that we're out campaigning to raise capital. So then we had to figure out what we were going to do until, you know, COVID subsided, which basically took, you know, well over... Uh, another year. But that was basically the process, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, you were associated with a company in the past that was trading on TSX Venture, although on the technology side. Was this the first company that you had been the CEO of that had gone public, especially as a US company technically in Colorado? First one, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, we are a US-based company. 
that decided to go public up in Canada. Number one, as I mentioned, I'm, I am Canadian, and I have a lot of friends and family up in Canada. And the fact of the matter is, you know, as a very small-cap startup company, it'd be very difficult to go public on the U.S. exchanges, especially the ones that we're all familiar with, either New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. And I almost look at the venture exchange up in Canada as a really good entry point. If you can enter through the TSX venture and be successful, you can always move up and uplist onto the TSX, or you can also take a look at uplisting to the NASDAQ, which is part of our goal. Our goal is to be able to provide to the markets that this is a big opportunity for us and you know just how big that opportunity is show that we can execute you know demonstrate bringing on more clients increasing our revenues potentially even enforcing our patents and then the goal would be to uplist to another trading platform either the TSX or maybe even uh, Nasdaq or both definitely definitely and that that is kind of the growth path we even talk about with a lot of the companies that that are interested in pursuing this path Curious about this because it, it is so important, both to a company, regardless of whether they go public or not, but especially important if they do, is the, the sort of quality of, of the season management team, right? How seasoned is the management team, having all the right players in place, having the functions sort of dissected. So even though ProStar is kind of an early stage growth startup, you do have a very seasoned management team. How pivotal was that in helping you actually pursue this listing? Oh, I think that's a very, very key component. I mean, you can have a great idea. You might even be able to demonstrate that there's a need for it in the market. But at the end of the day, two things. Number one, can you execute? And number two, can you deliver? I mean, those are the two most important components. So what I first did is I set out to put together a team that had experience, far more experience than I had. And I think in many cases, and I say this humbly, that you know, one of the greatest qualities of a good leader is, you know, find people and surround yourself with people that have a lot more experience than you and a lot more wisdom and are a lot smarter. I mean, that's the best thing you can possibly do. So the first thing I did is we initially developed the technology and it was working. And we had some large companies and, as I mentioned, government agencies that adopted our technology. But I've been involved in developing technology before, and usually I call it your first iteration of whatever you've developed probably needs some serious changes and improvements. And often you don't have the luxury to do that. So what I did is once we had developed it, I landed a couple customers and I said, okay, we've, we've really got something here. And this is a global problem. So we could have global operations, not just U.S. operations or Canadian operations. This could work anywhere in the world. But the technology platform we have, you know, you could talk about global operations, but will it support global operations? So what I decided to do was I would go out and recruit a chief operating officer that would help me with two things, making sure that the technology itself was globally scalable, that we put together, you know, a world-class development team, and number two, had experience and executing at a global level. So I hired one of the top C-level recruiting firms in the world to help me recruit a chief operating officer. And I found several really good qualified candidates. In fact, we had narrowed it down to a little over 50. And then I narrowed it down to what I considered to be the top five. And I you know, met with them on site. 
And then I landed on a gentleman whose name is Vasa Dasan. Vasa was the former chief technology officer for Sun Microsystems for 15 years, ran their global cloud operations. In fact, he's responsible for moving Wall Street to the internet. So he's used to big, big, big projects. Again, talk about change. Imagine going to uh, Wall Street and saying, yeah, we're going to put all your trading up on the internet and it's going to be secure. There'll be no downtime and you don't have to worry about anything. I mean, at some point, somebody first thought that was, again, jiggery pokery <laughs> and, and a pipe dream, right? But he did it. At one point, Sun was the largest technology company in the world. Eventually, uh, they sold to Oracle. But luckily, I was able to recruit Vasa. You know, Vasa, and he did his due diligence. He took a look at what we had developed, our technology, our patents, our team, and the opportunity, because he's going to have to put his reputation on the line. But I was successful in recruiting Vasa. But I've also brought in, for example, you know, our head of marketing was part of executive management at Disney. I recently just hired a new uh, director of sales that has extensive experience with working with some of the largest companies in the United States that are involved in identifying where utilities and pipelines are located. But at the end of the day, yeah, we have a world-class management team, our CFO, has managed the CFO responsibilities for several very high-profile companies that currently trade both on the venture as well as the TSX. I brought in Joel Sutherland to manage all of our investor relations. He has over 20 years of experience in Wall Street. So I try to bring everything in-house as opposed to outsourcing it. But number one, my goal is to bring in a world-class management team. You know, and ultimately one day if our get to the point where we have global operations. I'll either bring in a president to take over the role of president that I currently hold, or I might bring in a CEO. You know, it's all about moving this company forward, even if I have to step aside. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I would still obviously continue with the daily operations of the company, maybe just at, a, at another capacity. Definitely. And, and you mentioned early on, uh, before we got into the management team side, but you, you mentioned talking to a banker to sort of explore this process. Was it equally as important to have a good group of advisors around you? And obviously, for those listening, advisors, meaning bankers, lawyers, auditors, the exchange itself. How important was that going through this for the first time as a U.S. company? Yes. Again, it was a big deal for us to decide to go public. And as you mentioned, you know, this was really my first experience in doing it. I always wanted to run a publicly traded company. But again, you need to surround yourself with people that have been through this that you can trust. So I have an incredible team of lawyers. In fact, for example, the law firm we use has been involved in more U.S. companies going public in Canada than any other law firm in the United States. And it's that level of competency that you want because you're gonna to have to trust in, in what they're saying through this process. You also have to trust the banks that you're working with. And I've been fortunate that you know the banks that we work with, we created a great relationship. We still maintain that great relationship. They're still involved in ProStar. And then of course, as you mentioned, you know trusted advisors, which include your lawyers, your accountants. I mean, there's a lot of people that are involved in this process. And that's part of the team that you have to make sure that you can trust in that team and that you that you put that team together. And often it's just reaching out to people that have been through this experience and ask them who they use because we all make poor choices. That's how we learn. Inevitably, 
we end up, you know, making good choices based on the knowledge that we have from making poor choices. But you can also reach out to other companies. If somebody reached out to me, for example, and said, you know, what's your experience and who do you utilize? I'd be more than happy to tell them who we utilize, why we use them, what our experience has been. Because, you know, this is like a fraternity now. You've got lots of CEOs out there. They're involved in publicly traded companies. It's like an alumni network. Yeah, we, we share information and we're all looking out for each other. We all want each other to do well. And we're somewhat familiar with the kind of same trials and tribulations that we have to go through. Love to hear that. One last sort of rapid fire question I have for you, which is what's been the best part about being public and what's been the most challenging? Well, the best part is it is the easiest way to access capital. There's no doubt about it. The hardest part about it is, you know, once you access that capital, you are held accountable. So every day you're under a magnifying glass and you're being scrutinized based on the decisions that you're making. And this is a long road and it's a hard road. So some of the decisions that you make aren't going to always be the right decisions. And some of the things that you tell people when you think they're going to happen, sometimes they take a little longer. But you just have to have tough skin, confidence within yourself, and know that when you get up every morning that you're moving the bar and that you're making advancements and you're getting closer to where you want to be. And I'm pretty happy about you know where we are and the advancements we're making, we're executing. It's always a little harder and goes a little slower than you expect. But as long as every day you're moving along inch by inch by inch by inch, you're going to eventually get to where you want to be. Well, Paige, thank you very much. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of TMX Presents, the podcast. And thank you, Paige, for sharing your story on both building ProStar and the journey of taking the company public on the TSX Venture Exchange. Again, ProStar is under the ticker MAPS. For more information, visit us.tsx.com. And for more insights from capital markets leaders, visit tmx.com forward slash POV. Mm-hmm.